Bible, if you will, and open it to Luke chapter 1. It's page 855 in one of these Bibles in the pews. There's a movie to be released on Christmas Day uh, based on the book by Laura Hillenbrand entitled Unbroken. I assume a number of you have read that since it was printed in 2010. But you may know the story. Uh, it's about the life of uh, Louis Zamperini, who experienced a measure of fame in his youth and his college years as a runner, Was uh, thought he would be the first man to break the four-minute mile, and then uh, World War II intervened. And it tells about his entrance into the armed forces, become a bombardier on a plane, and then surviving over two years in a Japanese POW camp. It is a powerful, powerful book because it's such a powerful story, a story of courage and hope and perseverance and how the gospel of Christ transform a life. Now, I have no idea if that last part will be in the movie. Now, you've got to understand, the geniuses in our city come to the first service. So they all approached me after I said that at the first service. So, oh, I know, I've got the inside scoop. There's going to be no Christianity in that. And I thought, well, that makes sense. I mean, why would you include what the whole story rests on? <laughs> so, but um, I have no idea if that part will be in there or not. But I read the book on a Kindle, which included an interview with the author. And I, I mentioned at the first service also that I thought the Kindle was the greatest invention since fire. But I rethought that between services. <clears throat> and I looked up greatestinventions.com, not really. And, and really, the first greatest invention was fire, second was the wheel, third was the TiVo, and then fourth was the Kindle. So I was wrong on that. In the back of the version I read, the reason I told you that, there's one other thing about a Kindle, is that if you know it, it, it measures your pace that you're reading. And so you can look down after you've been reading a while, it will say at this rate, it will take you eight hours and seven minutes to finish. And mine... Uh, Mine says, since you're from Alabama, you'll never finish. <laughs> At the back of the book, though, there's an, there's an interview with Laura Hillenbrand with the uh, publishers, and, one, and I was keenly struck by one question that said, what to you is a good subject? What do you look for? See, this was her second book. Her first was Seabiscuit. She researched this book four years before she wrote it. And she, she made this comment. She said, you cannot truly understand an individual unless you understand the world he or she inhabits. And in illustrating that individual's world, you will hopefully capture history in the accessible, tactile, authentic way in which the times were actually experienced. And then she said, in Unbroken, I tried to paint portraits not just of individuals but of their times. I think uh, Luke, who's noted by many secular and uh, religious historians, is seen as one of the most accurate historians of ancient history. Uh, he would have fully agreed with what Laura Hillenbrand said currently because as he records for us the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, he goes into great detail as to who was who and where they were and when this happened. And he begins with a phrase that tells us about the times in which they lived. And it's in verse 5. Let me read the first few verses. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now Luke begins with a phrase that tells us how difficult times they were living in. He says, in the days of Herod the king. That's very important. Because history tells us Herod was a tyrant. And the Romans in the Roman Empire had put Herod in Jerusalem as a puppet king. History tells us he was ruthless. He was powerful. He was famous not only for construction and architecture, but for murder. He murdered members of his own family. He's responsible for the murder of the boys in, around the area of Bethlehem around the time of the birth of Jesus. So Herod's name is infamous, and Luke wants us to know. He reminds us uh, that that's who was in charge, you might say. That was the ruler who set the tone around these events of the birth of Jesus. We also know these days were spiritually barren days. There had been no prophet in Israel for four centuries. For 400 years, there had been no voice from God. Just think back in our own history, 400 years, and if you thought, well, there's been no message during that time, many of the people did what we would have done. They had become very skeptical. They had become secular, even though they were Jewish by background. They were secular, uh, a lot of agnosticism. But in contrast to that mindset, Luke introduces Zechariah. A simple married couple, Zechariah and his wife. And they had not turned from God. They had not uh, given in to skepticism or secularism. And it tells us in verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We're also told a little bit here about them from a standpoint of personal discouragement. It says that they were up in years, but they had been unable to have children, it says in verse 7. In a society like that, in ancient Israel, a woman's value in a, in a family was measured to a great extent by her ability to bear children. And, and so to be getting up in years and, from all indication, past the years that someone would have a child would have been a source, of, we assume, of hardship and discouragement. Uh, and no doubt they probably prayed about it many, many times, perhaps less so as they got older. But the point is, despite probably personal disappointment that they lived with every day, they were still faithful to God. They had not abandoned their faith. Now, I think that's important for us to know because when you deal with difficulties, the same difficulties that are chronic on a day-in, day-out, year-in, year-out 
way, it's easy to become cynical uh, and harden your heart. And, and we need to know our times. It's, it's obvious, and I almost feel foolish stating it, it's not the same America or the same world as 100 years ago or 50 years ago or even five years ago in, in many ways. And the hostility toward Christian faith just, just grows more and more in our part of the world. We're saturated with it. And, but we need to know, and, and, I, and I need to know as a pastor, we have not, we being in the United States, we have not had a major spiritual awakening at least for two generations. My generation never saw it. The generation before me never saw it. Well, I was in places where lots of people became Christians, but from when I read history about real awakening or call it revival, whatever, you wanna, whatever phrase you want to use, I've not seen what I'm going to read for you here from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote this in his book entitled Revival. From his study, he said, True revival is characterized by the Holy Spirit coming down in power upon individuals or upon an entire church or churches or even an entire country. It is a visitation of the Holy Spirit. It shows itself by people having an awareness of spiritual things they never had before. They are consumed with the Bible. There's a pervasive awareness, pervasive awareness of personal sin and guilt and a casting of themselves upon the mercy of God. They are concerned about their family members and friends and talk with them about their souls and the mercy of God. Continual prayer and intercession is a mark of revival. Mass conversions take place, some in church meetings, others at work or at home or in the middle of the night. Time seems to be forgotten. People will enter into prayer meetings or worship services in the evening and not cease until the sun comes up the next morning and nobody is aware of the passing of the hours. It is like heaven on earth. One person called it a divine disorder. Uh, our country has not seen that in, in a long, long time. Best we can tell, probably 1904 or 1905 might have been the last time there was any sort of awakening like that. We need to be aware of our times, but let's go back to the text. What else about Zechariah and Elizabeth? They were faithful to their present calling. Verses 8 and 9 tell us what they were doing during these times of disappointment and difficulty. They did not grow despondent or rebel. They remained faithful. They carried on their normal duties. We know here that Zechariah was a priest in his village. In Jerusalem, I mean in Israel at that time, there were 18,000 priests. The greatest honor to be given a priest, so I'm told, was to be called up to go to Jerusalem and to, to intercede and offer sacrifice in the temple. But with 18,000 priests, uh, the odds of you getting that opportunity were rare. So there was a lottery system by which a priest would be chosen. And then you would go that one day a year and do that, and it was probably the only time in your whole lifetime. So Zechariah is chosen. The lot falls to him, and so his family, for this great honor, they go with him. They go with him up to the temple. And he was doing, in verses 8 and 9, he's inside doing what would have been instructed from the book of Exodus chapter 30. Uh, there in the, 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 the temple was the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that contained the, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the gold-lidded box that it contained the Ten Commandments and some other items. And it's, it's there on the, in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And right outside of that is an altar where the priest would go and he would offer this incense in accordance with Exodus 30. And the incense would go up, was representative of the prayers of God's people. And he would pray for the peace of Israel and so forth. 
So that's what's happening. And as he's doing this, it was also customary that his family or friends would have been waiting out in the outer court, waiting for him to come out to see if he had had a vision from God. Well, things go very different here. And Luke tells us in verse 11 that while Zechariah is there offering this uh, offering at the incense uh, there at the altar, that there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, Luke never saw an angel. He had never seen one. And people, this was not normative uh, that this happened. And yet he writes it just uh, almost as matter of fact. And it seems to be matter of fact because Luke would have no more written about an angel appearing than you or I might not have done so had he not known about this and believed that it happened. So Zechariah responds when he sees this angel the same way I would have responded or perhaps you would have responded. Terrified. He is terrified. It says that, that, that fear fell upon him. And so the angel's first words in verse 13 are, Do not be afraid. And then he says, your prayer has been heard. Imagine, imagine uh, that happening. A few minutes ago, we had a, a prayer, and, and, and John Kinzer led us in a corporate prayer that we were to pray along silently. What if right when that finished, this angelic being appeared in here and looked at us and said, your prayer has been heard? Well, after we got over our terror, the first question might have been, which prayer? You know, wh- which prayer ha- have you come for? Perhaps did he mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth, their prayers for a child that they had prayed? Maybe, but most probably what he meant was the prayer Zechariah was offering as the priest, which was for the peace of Israel, for God to send the Messiah, the one who had been promised all through the Old Testament. And then also by what the angel says to him, him, it seems that was the prayer he's talking about for the Messiah. And so he gives a promise in verses 13 and 17. I won't reread it. But about this one and they, that they would have, they would have a son, even in Elizabeth's old age, and they would name him John, and, and he would be great before the Lord. <clears throat> Zechariah, even beyond being stunned, there's, there's unbelief there. He says, how can this be? And his doesn't seem to be a question like Mary asked, how can this be? As though, how is this possible? Apparently, his is more from unbelief and and lack of expectancy that God would do this. Uh, And so he will not speak uh, from that point on. And the angel identifies himself. I am Gabriel. Uh, I stand in the presence of God. Now, Zechariah would have known exactly who Gabriel was, just like every priest and every scripture-reading person of that day. He had appeared in Daniel chapter 9. He was a messenger from God. So it's not only... Uh, an angel, it is, it is the angel, the angel who is God's, uh, more to say, personal messenger. And so Zechariah is unexpected in his prayer. Expectancy in prayer is trusting God to respond and trusting God to answer. Uh, and Jesus told several parables about expectancy in prayer. He told about the neighbor who needed three loaves, he told about the widow before the judge. And he urges us, his children, to be expectant in prayer. Uh, And the main reason we should be expectant is because God is generous, that our Heavenly Father is generous. You pray with expectation. How specific are your prayers? I I mentioned at the first service that the one thing I prayed for the longest was the conversion of my own father. Uh, I had started walking with Christ in high school, and he... 
he had had bad, bad experiences from church and so forth as a child, and he wanted nothing to do with it. And the more the years passed, the harder he became to such an extent that he and I, we finally just said, we, we can't talk about this without an argument. So I, I just never would bring it up. But I prayed for him almost daily for 20 years. I had many other family members and friends that prayed for him. I had friends that tell me, said, you know, I don't know why, but I pray for your dad, and I hardly know him. Well, after 20 years, we're living here in Macon, and my mother tells me that, that the pastor at that church that my father had gotten to know through, through hospital visits, my dad had been sick, uh, he had told him, so I want to come see you. I want to come see you at your house now that you're out of the hospital. I want to talk to you about your soul. And so he told him why he was coming, and my dad said, okay, I want to talk to you. And my mom said, please be praying for tomorrow at such and such a time because... Uh, Pastor Haygood's going to come and talk to him. So the next day I did pray, and after 20 years of prayer, and the next day my mother calls me and said, Chip, I've got some good news I want to share with you. And she said, your dad has said that he has trusted Christ as a redeemer. First words out of my mouth, I don't believe it. <laughs> 20 years. I mean, that, that was my feeling. I would have been like Zachariah, um, but, but I could still talk after that. <laughs> So I drove over a few days later. I wasn't going to put words in his mouth. I wasn't going to make it easy on him. I wasn't going to say, is this, I was just going to let, I was going to make it hard on him from the standpoint. I wasn't going to say anything. I hadn't been in the house five minutes, and he said, I want to tell you something. And he started talking about what he now believed, and he didn't quit until three years later when he died. Every time I'd seen him, that's all he wanted to talk about. Things moved from sports and football and every, that, that always can politics that had been the consuming conversations. Now he hardly even wanted to talk about that. But anyway, do you pray with expectation? Are you praying with right motives? Last couple of thoughts here. One of the things Zechariah says about John in verse 15 is he will be great before the Lord. John the Baptist is probably, the, would grow to be the keen example in the Bible of, of greatness. In fact, Jesus said of him, there has never been worn one born among women greater than he. How do we measure greatness today? Uh, wealth, athletic prowess, uh, intellect, popularity. Uh, those who are great in this world on the last day will not be the ones who are honored as the great. Ligon Duncan was here in September and preached, and I love what he says about this thought. He wrote, one of the things I look forward to most about the Judgment Day is seeing scores and scores of faithful believers who lived and ministered in obscurity, not faith, just faithfully serving the Lord. And the world didn't know anything about them, and the world didn't pay them any attention, and the world didn't give them any acclaim. And on the last day, they are going to be ushered forward, and God is going to say, let me introduce you to the great ones. And the ones who have received fame here, they'll be far in the back of the crowd, for the last will be first on that day, and it will be a glorious thing to see. Herod, the king at that time, will be forgotten on the last day. John will not be, because true greatness is greatness in the Lord's estimation. The last thought, do you know how to live with present difficulties like Zechariah and Elizabeth to be faithful at your post? at your calling, even amidst personal, perhaps, disappointments. How were they able to do this? They live with their ear to the ground. They live their daily lives expecting God to fulfill his promise, promises of sending a redeemer. We live with our ears to the ground, and the whole world will see when Christ comes again. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the events surrounding the birth of Christ with ordinary people. Uh, And we pray that your word would land on good soil and bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your order of service. Let's stand and sing together. Hark the herald angels sing.